I inherited your fantasy team in the Preston Sun League. I did, still have that going. Did you win? Did, did you turn it into a winner? I have turned it into a uh, perennial semifinalist. This is The Other 51. I'm Brian, and this week I'm talking with John Campbell of USA Today Network, New York. All right, so you know what the first question is going to be, right? I believe so. What do you, what do you got for me? All right, where does Upstate begin? <laughs> it's a mystery. It's a mystery. <laughs> it's uh, I've spent a lot of time on Twitter trolling people, trying to uh, you know, anytime there's a uh, any anytime anybody tries to define Upstate New York, which is an inherently undefinable thing. I get a total kick out of it, and uh, and I also get a kick out of the fact that no matter how many times. I tweet about it as uh, as some sort of joke. Uh, people still take it very, very seriously, and people. And, and the other thing, you see, you got me going already. Uh, <laughs> the 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 thing that I get great joy out of 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 constantly asking people where Upstate New York begins is that people have their own definition that they have, you know, for years believed to be the one true definition, and they they get they are totally flabbergasted when they hear that there's not. That that's not there is no one true definition, you know. It's it's a, a concept essentially, and uh, people will argue until the sun goes down, and it brings me great joy just to <laughs> kind of uh, stir that pot every once in a while. How did that all? I'm trying to remember how this all began with you trolling people on, about on it, especially on Twitter. Like, do you remember? Like, it had to have started with something at least quasi serious before it turned into this. It wasn't. I don't. There wasn't any one moment. I don't think. But the. But it was born of frequently seeing national publications uh, refer to upstate New York with the broad brush, uh, because you know all the time if you see somebody, you know, or either national publications or a publication from out of town will refer to upstate New York as pretty much anything outside of New York City. Uh, but you know, you know, and I know that there it is. It is way more nuanced that, than that. There's no one real definition. You can't, you know, the, the the problems that face Buffalo are similar to the problems that face Albany in some ways, but different in others. And you know, it, it's 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 so it, it's ridiculous almost to to paint it with one broad brush as upstate New York when you're talking about an enormous area. Um, but you know, all the time you see national outlets, you know, do that. And that's what it was born of. I, I, I don't remember any one specific article or anything like that. It was just I would point it out online and then on Twitter and people would fight about it. And I, and then it kind of became my shtick. And then I got <laughs> tired of it for a while because it, it got exhausting with, you know, all sorts of people. Just anytime Upstate is mentioned anywhere, they would send it to you and like kind of expect you to tweet it out and. I kind of got away from it, but uh, I did get back to it. Even today, I got back to it. So, I, I, that saw, I, I saw that, and it, it's funny because a lot of times, and I used to be like this too. I'll explain how I've come around to the other side of it. But like when you live upstate like we do, um, you get really territorial. Like we're not upstate. We're western New York because I'm out here mm -hmm. in Rochester, or we're central New York or southern tier because those are they are really different regions with different economics and kind of different – some, you know – a nuanced different culture, which is weird to say, having grown, lived here all my life. But there are differences in different parts of the state. The reason, one of the reasons I came around to not really caring 
as much about the regional parts of the state is I have a lot of friends who live like in Indiana or out of state and trying to explain to them the nuance of, no, we're actually central New York, not upstate New York is just, it, <laughs> it feels really kind of like, I mean, pedantic, even by my pedantic standards. So I'm just like, yeah, I see value in upstate. Yeah. Well, and it's, and I, I, there is some value in it because there's value in it. If, if you look at it as a collective of different regions, you know what I mean? Like, uh, when I, you and I are both, uh, Lockport guys, mm-hmm. Niagara County guys. Uh, and when I was living in Lockport, I was one of those, well, we're Western New York. We're not upstate New York. Right. And for whatever reason in Buffalo, in the Buffalo area, there is a particular breed there that, that believes very strongly that Western New York is somehow separate from upstate New York. Right. <laughs> uh, and now I realize that that's, you know, that's ridiculous. It's inclusive. You know what I mean? It, upstate New York is inclusive of Western New York and central New York and the capital region and the North country, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I, yeah, there is value in looking at it as a collective, but there is, you can do yourself, uh, a disvalue, I guess you could say, uh, by looking at it as kind of, uh, homogenous you know what i mean there's a lot of of especially when you talk about like the adirondacks i mean the the north country the adirondacks is just totally different from from anywhere else in the state so uh there's 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 value but but you could uh you know i i think uh when you get the magnifying glass out you can uh, see the differences in the area yeah it's so my uh my my standard definition for upstate and this tends to uh get universal least not least grudging approval or approval is anything north of poughkeepsie basically if you can take metro north you're downstate That, that is a lot that is a definition that a lot of people like that uh anything with the mta region anywhere where the MTA, the New York City public transit system and the commuter rail systems service, that is downstate and anywhere else is, is upstate. And I agree that that's a pretty good definition, but I, the, the problem I have with it is people in Buffalo have no idea what really what the MTA region is, you right. know what I mean? And, and the same thing with the North Country. So it, that definition works well for when you're explaining it to downstaters. Uh, it works less well when you are explaining it to uh, quote unquote upstate. Right. So, I mean, this is a, a funny conversation we could drag out all day, but I am wondering if there's a, a, a journalistic component to it because you, uh, like you said, we both grew up, we have very similar career paths, really. We both grew up in Lockport, graduated from Lockport High School, go Lions. Uh, yep. We both worked at the uh, Press and Sun Bulletin in Binghamton. Not together, though. You came after I had already already left and i'm wondering having grown up and and you went to school at at u of albany having grown up and lived all throughout upstate new york however we want to define it i'm just wondering does that do you think that influences or impacts how you cover the state government and how you cover state government issues or how you find stories or think of stories or think of how government stories can affect the entire state 100 percent, absolutely yes without a doubt because i i am a, uh, you know, I, I uh, uh, poke fun at the whole upstate thing, but I am an upstater through and through. You know, I mean, that's where I've lived my entire life. And I and the papers that we serve, you know, I write for the USA Today Network, which is now up to 15 daily papers in New York. Uh, I mean, they are all over the state, but they are primarily uh, north of that Poughkeepsie area. We, ha- we have Poughkeepsie. We have a Westchester paper the journal news, but everything else, you know, Utica, Rochester, Binghamton, Ithaca, Elmira, I mean, you name it. And 
so I am always trying to to write for uh, those people, so to speak, and and try to keep in mind what uh, what affects them. Whereas most media in New York is is New York City focused, and that makes perfect sense. It is the largest media market in the country, uh, with you know an enormous amount of papers. Any day at the Capitol, you've got reporters from the New York Times, New York Post, Daily News, the Wall Street Journal, you name it, Newsday. Um, so it makes sense that that much of the media is focused on New York City and Long Island and the suburbs. That being said, uh, I you know I we try to to establish ourselves as a voice of the rest of the state, and and I think we mostly succeed at doing that. I mean, we we do kind of get wrapped up in in you know the the uh, the kind of pack journalism mentality from time to time. Uh, but I, I think we, we definitely, we try to, you know, keep in mind that we are writing for the rest of the state. It, it's a little tricky when you have something like this with the coronavirus, uh, outbreak where it is very much centered in New York city and it's the epicenter of the entire country. Uh, so in, in that respect, it's, uh, you know, you have to kind of be New York city focused, but, uh, you know, we, we try to think of ourselves as, as a voice for the rest of the state, I guess you could say. So what makes a good upstate New York story? And I know that's a broad brush, obviously, but if you're thinking about a story or something that has roots or something that kind of has um, resonance upstate versus, you know, a, just a down a, a New York City story or Long Island story or something like that, what are some of those characteristics, do you think? I, I think in some ways it's easier to think of what makes a bad upstate New York story. And and what I and a lot of times with with national outlets or or you know people who are kind of just swooping in for one story in in upstate New York, love to to uh, you know write it as if it is this like country bumpkin, uh, you know more cows than people kind of rural wasteland and and I don't know if it's intentional or not or you know they're coming from New York City and you know nothing is like New York City so everything feels like a you know a rural wasteland or whatever. Um, but that is the trap that a lot of, uh, I think, national writers fall into when they are writing about upstate New York. Uh, I think what makes a, a good upstate New York story, uh, I mean, there are a lot of different topics that, that upstaters care about. Property taxes is always one of them. Anything that, that has to do with, uh, with Property taxes or the star credit, anything like that, is something that really resonates in New York and in, in upstate New York. Uh, Community-oriented stories. I mean, uh, upstate cities and their surrounding areas tend to be very community-oriented, especially when you get into west, west Western New York with you know Buffalo and Rochester. I mean, people are very um, Territorial is not the right word, but they they care deeply about their community and they care about any any slights to that community. Um, and then you know other other than that, we're you know we're just looking for what happens in the state capitol, in the governor's office, in the legislature that affects uh, that that commonly that that affects either individual cities or there's a common thread among upstate cities and rural areas and everything else and. Uh, that's why I said property taxes. That's one of those issues that it is a, a commonality among all of them. Um, but it, it's, you know, when I'm looking for a story, I'm looking at something that affects 
people, has a real effect on people. I, I try to do less of the, you know, Donald Trump and Andrew Cuomo, you know, sniped at each other yesterday. But it, although it's been hard to avoid lately um, with, you know, now that they both have this big national stage, um, I, I try to avoid the, the kind of inner working stories, the, the uh, you know, incremental this bill passed this committee story and focus more on stories that have an actual effect on people's pocketbooks or their sense of well-being or their way of life. So uh, we'll get to all the Cuomo and Trump stuff, obviously. Um, but you've been covering state government for a lot of years now. And I'm just wondering, what was your job? What was that like You know, in the before time? So like, what was, a, what was your job like before March 2020, before all this stuff BC, started happening? Before coronavirus? <laughs> I like that. Uh, my job was uh, a lot less busy <laughs> for the <laughs> most part. Uh, you know, it was it was generally my my job six months of the year was focused on uh, the ins and outs of the legislative session. Okay. So the lawmakers for the state legislature, all 213, 213 of them are at the state capitol uh, for a few days a week for six months a year uh, where they they pass legislation. And, and then within that legislative session, there's two big um, kind of legislative pushes where really everything gets done. And one is the state budget, which is due in March. The other is the end of the legislative session. They always pass some sort of big package of bills right before they leave in June. And generally, uh, my job revolves around those two dates and trying to figure out what's going to go in the budget, parsing out what is, is you know, affects the people in the communities that we serve. Um, and uh and the state we serve and and everything everything at the capitol revolves around that so my job tends to re revolve around that for those six months for the other six months i have more time to do enterprise and and dig into things more deeply that maybe i i didn't have a chance before uh when the legislative session because that's much it was in session because that is is a much busier time so you know six months of the year it's it's legislative session focus the other six months it's it's more enterprise unless i have some sort of big uh big race to cover the governor's race every four years the legislative races every two years then the second six six months of the year is is generally uh election focused and and you know covering covering races that uh, that matter to people this now it's totally different I mean, now it's almost all coronavirus. Right. Um, when you were when you started covering state government and to get on the soapbox for a second, um, state government is one of those beats that has been really diminished over the really over the past generation of newspapers. Um, it's just one of the first things that a lot of news organizations cut or a lot of wire services cut back on. Um, and it's a shame because that's really as important as as federal government coverage or anything like that. So this is, you know, the, the covering state houses and state government is really super important um, in terms of informing people and community journalism. Um, I'm wondering when you started covering the legislature and, and kind of started that beat, how did you – how did how did you kind of start figuring out the lay of the land? Like, how do you start developing sources and relationships? With like you said, you have 217 legislators, you have the governor's office, all these different regulatory agencies, and all of that. So, how did you go about kind of starting to learn the lay of the land on the beat? So, when I I started, I was an intern. Uh, I started interning with with Gannett, uh, 
the, the company that owns the USA Today Network, in 2009, uh, and actually I've never left since. I've been with the company ever since. Uh, when I got my first job out of college in 2010, it was in Binghamton at the Press and Sun Bulletin. And at that point, the biggest story uh, was the debate over hydraulic fracturing, hydrofracking. Uh, and I, my beat was the hydrofracking beat, essentially, of, of environment and health. And so for the 10 and a half months I was in Binghamton, that's pretty much all I covered was just the ins and outs of whether New York State would allow hydrofracking, you know, and the impact it would have on the southern tier and you know, these farmers who have hundreds or thousands of acres of land and that they have no use for right now. But if the state allowed hydrofracking, they'd, uh, they'd be able to lease their land for thousands of dollars an acre. But then the other side was the, were the environmental concerns. And you had these very well-organized environmentalists raising concerns about the impact it would have on land and air and water. And so I got to know that beat really, really, really well when I was at Binghamton. Flash forward to 2011, when I get to Albany, that's still the biggest debate going in the southern tier, but it's it's my my role kind of shifted. So now I'm in Albany, I'm covering the state legislature and the governor and the governor's agencies. One of the governor's agencies is the Department of Environmental Conservation, which was tasked with uh, deciding whether to allow large-scale hydrofracking. So I continued covering that when I was in Albany. I had the sources already developed at that point. I, I was able to kind of make a name for myself as like the, the quote unquote fracking guy, which I, I resisted at first because I wanted to, to you know, be more well-rounded than that. But then I kind of realized after a while, wait a second, it's, this is good. You know, people are, are kind of knowing who I am, knowing that I'm covering this beat, you know, and I, I was able to develop more sources on the state side that translates well to to any number of state issues that I've covered since. And that's kind of how I got the ball rolling there was, was really trying to own one specific part of the Albany beat. And then that helped me, you know, develop sources that, that helped otherwise too. So now obviously that's the before times. Um, now we're in, in the, in the, or the current times, I should say, can't even say the after times. Um, and I'm wondering for you journalistically, kind of professionally, do you remember kind of a, any mo a specific moment where you kind of had the oh shoot this is this is big kind of like the real the realization um whether it was a Cuomo press conference or something like that where it kind of dawned on you or you kind of realized the, the, the inkling of what we were dealing with here yes I can give you an exact moment okay uh I was this was before we were working from home everybody this was uh, early March uh, the state had just had its first case, coronavirus case. I think it was March 1st, actually, the state had its first case. And it was a woman who was a healthcare worker who had just come back from Iran. And right. so it was it was not community spread. People weren't terribly concerned about it because she had quarantined when she came home. You know, she knew she was at risk because she went to an area that was one of these hot spots. The second case was, I believe, two days later. So we're talking March 3rd. And that was a a lawyer who works in Manhattan, uh, but uh, lives in New Rochelle, Westchester County, and he had tested positive. We quickly learned that he had attended events at his his uh, uh, his shul, his temple in in New Rochelle. He, he belongs to an Orthodox Jewish. Uh, 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 
denomination down in, in Westchester County. And he had, we quickly learned that he had gone to a funeral and a bat mitzvah at this, this shul that were attended by hundreds of people. And nobody knew how he, he contracted the virus. He hadn't traveled to any of these hotspots. And when we started calling around and realizing how many people he may have come into contact with, that's when I was like, oh, my, this is, you know, this is going to be a thing there. And that's when uh, myself, my my boss, Joe Spector, and uh, our, our Westchester paper really kind of kicked it into high gear. And that was that was the first cluster in New York State. And it, we you saw how quickly it spread his his kids got it. His his wife got it. You know, hundreds of people who went to this temple got it, and uh, all had to quarantine. I mean, there were a thousand people that were immediately ordered in, into quarantine, which at the time sounded like a lot of people. Right. Um. So that was the moment. So what's it been? What's it like now? I mean, we're well a month into it, and I, I guess kind of the highest profile part of your job right now is Governor Cuomo and his daily. Uh, press briefings, press conferences. What are those like to be a part, to be first in and now kind of obviously, are you distant reporting or are you in person for them? I'm, I'm in person for them every couple days. I'll okay. go one day. My boss will go another day. If there's a day where we don't have a particularly pressing question or anything, we'll skip it. Um, so I, I, I'm, I, I'm there three times a week probably. Okay. Um, most recently on Saturday. Uh, and what it's, it's kind of weird because it's, it's a totally familiar setting, right? It's in the red room of the state Capitol, which is where, you know, governors for time memorial have had, uh, you know, major press conferences, but now it's every single day, which we've never had that kind of access to the governor. Uh, and now it's also broadcast on live every day on CNN, on Fox news, on MSNBC. So it's totally familiar in one sense and totally unfamiliar in another sense. Uh, and, you know, when you're in the room, you're not really thinking about like it's broadcast on TV and this and that. Um, you know, it's it's a, a familiar setting with reporters that we know that cover the Capitol every day. Everybody, my competitors who I know. Um, and, you know, we all are well accustomed to to fighting to get in, get in our questions and asking clear, concise questions to try to get the best information. Uh, but then it's, it's weird to go home and, you know, you know, your, uh, your, your third grade teacher is texting you or posting <laughs> on your Facebook wall and, you know, or if like the governor messes with you one day and says your name or something like then uh, everybody comes out of the woodwork. It's kind of, it's a, it's a strange experience in that sense, but you know, we got a job to do and we're doing it. Yeah, I remember that kind of when, you know, obviously nothing to this scale, but a couple of times when you're when a story on my beat or a story on anybody's beat gets big, it is that weird mix of familiar and unfamiliar because at the end of the day, it's the same job that you're doing and the same people mm -hmm. and a lot of the same same experiences. It's now just having that the cameras on you. Do you think about I you, you mentioned you don't, but do you ever kind of get a get a sense when you're asking a question, "Oh, oh, I better not mess this up" or like I got to make sure I phrase it right, even more so because of the attention it's getting. Not, not more so because of the attention, but more so because uh, Andrew Cuomo is a very skilled politician, uh, and he is very good at answering the question that he wants to answer rather than the <laughs> question that was answered was asked. Right. Uh, so I, I do put a lot of thought into how I phrase a question. 
Um, and you always have to be ready with follow-ups. And, and I put a lot of thought into that. But I, I don't, like I said, when you're in the moment, it's it's like what you've, you've done a thousand times over, you know, the last nine plus years of Andrew Cuomo as governor. You're sitting in the room, the same familiar people are around you. You're asking questions of the governor in a way that you always have. The only difference is there's, you know, um, exponentially more people watching every day. Um, but I mean, I used to, when I first started, I used to get very nervous asking questions and, and like, not just... It's not just asking questions. It's also finding the gap in time where where you can speak up and get your question in and being very aggressive um, to get your question in. I mean, that used to I used to feel like anxiety of that way back in you know 2011. But okay, ah, it's old hat now. <laughs> so what's what's the secret to getting your question in? Uh, well, I mean, the secret is uh, there's no one secret. It's really you. When you make a point of trying to watch every word that the governor speaks in public, and you've been doing it for nine plus years, you get a a sense for his verbal tendencies, his speech patterns, um, his his nonverbal cues to let you know that he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the 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 so the, I guess the trick would be to actually sit there and listen and watch him. And, you know, when you pick up on one of those cues, uh, you, you can't waste any time. I mean, if you wait half a second, somebody else is going to jump in. Right. So uh, it's it's really just the trick is to pick up on the, the verbal kind of speech pattern cues and the, the nonverbal cues. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's Cuomo like to cover? And is he any different now than he was before in the before times? Well, I mean, the major difference is he's, it's we have way, way, way more access to him. I mean, in times uh, in the before times, uh, if we're going to keep calling it that, and I think we should. I, it works. Uh, yeah. In the before times, he uh, would go weeks or months without talking to the Capitol press crew, press corps. Um, you know, and it, it largely depended on what was in the news that day or that week. I mean, for a long time, he dealt with. Uh, the Joe Prococo scandal, which, which if your your listeners don't know, I mean that was Joe Prococo was his closest, most trusted aide, somebody he viewed quite literally as a brother, uh, who was caught up in a in a bribery scandal and is in jail, and uh, in, in Otisville in in Orange County, and uh, you know in the the midst of that scandal, we would go a long time without hearing from him. Um, you know, there were there were periods of time where he wouldn't be happy with the pre- Capitol Press Corps and he would go and, you know, speak to press in different cities or New York City because, you know, he, he didn't like this report or that report. I mean, but now we have access to him every single day. Uh, and and it's it's good. I mean, it, it's that's that is a good thing for, for the public's knowledge. I mean, a lot of news has come out of those question and answer periods every right. day. Uh, and reporters have done really, really well to push for data, nursing home data in particular. I mean, the state wasn't releasing which nursing homes had cases until reporters every single day would push the governor on it. Uh, and we got some incomplete data, but it's it's data nonetheless. And we're continuing to push and we're going to get more data later in the week. So uh, I think it's an invaluable role. I think he deserves some credit. I mean, he definitely deserves credit for for going before the press every single day, um, and and I think the you know the state is is better off for it. 
it's he always strikes me he strikes me as he's got a little bit of the Jim Beheim uh I mentality in that he'd be he's probably really great with like the out of town national reporters but the local you know or a state lo- you know to him local beat reporters are the ones he's like rough and grumpy to and doesn't really give a lot of time to but like meet the press calls and he's always there like uh Beheim's always on PTI but will go a long time without covering Syracuse he always struck me like that um I don't know if that's completely fair in the okay. four times. Okay. Uh, it, he he went in times of disaster or emergency, you know, whether it's Superstorm Standy or uh, the coronavirus or anything. In those times, he loves being the person in charge, and he loves uh, being the guy who has got this, who who has the situation under control. And in those times, he will go on national TV any anybody who would ask him he would he would do it and you're seeing that with the coronavirus thing you've seen him on his brother's show you're seeing him call into msnbc and he's been on the hannity radio show a couple times which is really bizarre um but in in normal times he he doesn't necessarily do that and he, he would go long stretches without being on national tv um you know I, is he gruff with the local reporters ah i don't know i i've never i i you know, I'll watch a Behan press conference and I'll see him get snippy with a, a, a local reporter and I'll take offense to it. I've never I've never felt that he's been particularly rough with local reporters, but he will avoid us for for, for periods of time. Not now, not in the the uh, the coronavirus era, but but certainly before that. That's fair. It was just kind of a perception I had more than more than anything else. But uh, so um What's a you mentioned the nursing home data, and obviously that's a huge story that's kind of coming out bit by bit as data comes out. What other coronavirus-related stories uh, in New York do you you don't have to give away what you're working on? But what ones do you think should be told, or do you want to tell? Uh, the prison system is a big mm-hmm. one. Uh, the the it's a similar idea. You know, you have. Uh, in nursing homes, you have people in close quarters who, uh, you know, if one person gets it, then it spreads throughout the whole thing. It's the same thing in prisons. You know, you have uh, people in in close quarters who, who can't really socially distance. And if a, a corrections officer comes into contact with somebody outside of the prison, contracts the coronavirus, brings it into the prison, then it's going to spread like wildfire. Much like the, uh, the nursing homes, the state hasn't, uh, to this point, identified which facilities have cases, nor has it said how many uh, prisoners have been tested. So while there's a couple hundred cases in of, of inmates who have tested positive in the prison system, the state prison system, we don't know where they are. We don't know if if it's a product of only, you know, if, if 200 people test positive and only 400 people were tested, uh, then that suggests that the the problem is much larger. So that's that's kind of the next front that uh, people are pushing on. Uh, I wasn't in the press conference today. We're talking on Monday, uh, but I, I did hear another reporter pressing on that, and that's that's one of the things coming up that we'll push on for sure. Great. Um, so I ask everybody I have on this question. So I'll ask you, what's the best thing that you've read lately? <laughs> you know, the funny part of this is I knew I've listened to your podcast. I knew that you were going to ask me this question. I have an answer prepared. And even still, my first reaction was to say, oh, boy, that's a good call. I don't know. <laughs> so I I just wanted to remark on that because that kind of caught me by surprise that that's how that was still my reaction. Uh, but the best thing I read lately was uh, it's a book by David McGraw. 
who is an attorney for the New York Times. I, I don't know if you remember, there was back in the the campaign, the 2016 campaign, or maybe right after, the Times did a big, huge story on all the uh, sexual harassment uh, accusations against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. The Trump campaign sent some sort of cease and desist, and the Times lawyer wrote back this really well-written letter that that just like told him to get out of here. I remember know? that. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it went viral. It went super viral. That guy, that attorney, Dave McGraw, wrote a book. Um, it's called Truth in Our Times. I just finished it a couple weeks ago. It's excellent. I mean, it is. It's really well written. It's not written written in like legalese, uh, which I appreciate uh, from an attorney. Uh, and it's it's also like you. I I never thought of it in terms of. Um, you know, when you talk about all of the major stories that the New York Times in, is involved in or, or covers deeply, the common thread among all of them isn't the reporters or even the editors that work on it. The common thread is the attorneys huh, when yeah. they get involved. And so he, he just wrote a really interesting book with an interesting perspective uh, on all these different, you know, uh, reporters held hostage in different countries and uh, you know, dealing with the Trump campaign. I mean, just really interesting journalism book from a a non-journalist, somebody like somebody in the journalism world from a different perspective than you're used to. And that was the best thing I've read lately. Very cool. I meant to I meant to ask earlier. Um, you mentioned the Trump Cuomo back and forth itis that's happening. Uh, I think it was Friday. It was Thursday or Friday last week where they were like going at each other in real time. Um, what's that like? I mean, do you, I mean, cause I, I can, I can see a sense where that's really kind of fun to get into and to tweet back and forth, but you kind of said you don't like getting into that too much. So what's that like? And how do you balance out that? Like the like public's, uh, cer- at least a certain segment of the public probably wants to, to read about that and to see that tit for tap, but also kind of avoiding it for, like you said, like the bigger issue that you're reporting on. Yeah, I, I mean, I think when I when I said I try to avoid it, it's it just doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't. It's not uh, something that has a direct impact on uh, you know everybody in New York's daily life. You know, they're much more worried about uh, do I have to wear a mask in public? How long is my non-essential business going to be closed? Those things. And right. so when I say that I, I try to avoid the the Trump for and Cuomo tit for tat. Um, that's, that's what I mean. I try to focus more on things that actually matter to, to real people. That being said, when it gets to that level and the president of the United States is watching the governor of New York's press conference and live tweeting it, drawing a reaction from the governor that goes on for 15 plus, it was 16 something minutes (laughs) that the governor just went off on this tweet. You can't ignore that, you know? So you, you have to pick that balance i mean you could write a uh you know trump cuomo story every day um but when you're trying to keep your focus on what really matters to your audience and what actually has an impact on your audience that's what i mean we, we try to you know eschew that as much as possible right uh john this has been a great conversation um thanks so much i appreciate you taking the time to do this hey thanks for having me brian
As always, thanks for listening to The Other 51. You can find show notes for this episode and all our episodes at sportsmediaguide.com on The Other 51 tab. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I can highly recommend Overcast for this. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz. Thank you.